For the News and Observer in Raleigh, North Carolina, I'm Lucille Sherman. This is the special 2020 elections edition of Domecast, the NC Insider and NNO Politics podcast. Every week for the next eight weeks, we'll spotlight a legislative or statewide race. This week, we're kicking it off with House District 37. It's an important one for Democrats, and I personally think it's an interesting one because of how much these two candidates have in common. Here's my colleague and fellow politics reporter, Will Doran, with what you need to know about this race. Well, it is down here in lovely southwestern Wake County, uh, where I am recording this from, my house in Fuquay. It is a fairly rural area, at least as far as Wake County goes. Historically, a pretty conservative area. Democrats flipped it for the first time in 2018 after the Republicans had held on to it for a while as part of the blue wave where Democrats really just wiped out the GOP in the Wake County suburbs. But in the suburbs south of town, you've got this race with incumbent Sidney Batch, the Democrat facing a pretty well-funded challenge from uh, Aaron Paré, her Republican opponent. Between the two of them, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Lucille, I'm pretty sure this is the most expensive house race, or at least competitive house race in the state this year, so far, right? Yeah, it's the most expensive competitive house race, which is an important, important emphasis. And then it comes in third in terms of competitive races so far. Um, just with second quarter campaign finance raising. Uh, she got a lot of help from Emily's List, um, which is a, a big Democratic group focused on getting women elected. I, I believe she's also got some help from Tom Steyer, some other national figures. Yeah, this one is going to be really interesting to watch because it is probably Republicans' best shot in the triangle of winning back some of the gains that, that they lost in 2018. And so you're probably going to see, you know, a lot of effort on the philosophy that a good offense is the best defense, because when it comes down to it, if Democrats want to take the majority in 2020 elections to have it at the start of 2021, they are going to need to net six seats in the House. And so that means if Batch loses to Paré, then Democrats are going to have to flip seven Republican-held seats to make up for that. Okay, so how does redistricting play into this race? Redistricting is huge here. It is a big motivation for Democrats in general for why they want to take control of the majority this year. Obviously, they have you know, their wish list items, like they would like to expand Medicaid, they would like to you know, do everything else that they talk about. But the big, big, big deal about whether or not they take the majority this year versus in, say, 2022 or 2024 or you know never, um, would be that whichever party has control of the legislature after these elections in 2020 is going to be in charge of the next decade's worth of redistricting. So these, for, for that reason, which is a, a big reason, I mean, that controls, you know, who, how you draw the maps for the U.S. House of Representatives and for the state legislature, that is going to be a huge deal. Okay, so we have sort of redistricting as a big issue with this race and really all races. This is an expensive race. Democrats really can't afford to lose it. Is there anything else you think we need to know about House District 37? 
Well, you know, in a lot of ways, it's pretty emblematic of North Carolina. As I was saying earlier, it is historically kind of a rural agricultural area, but is just booming with growth because of the research triangle. Um, a few years ago, I'm pretty sure Fuquevarina was the fastest growing city in the entire state. I'm pretty sure it's still up there. A lot of the other Western Wake suburbs are also up there among the fastest growing. And you have this kind of push and pull between, you know, the, the old time residents who lean more conservative and then some of the newcomers who, you know, are seeing these communities as, you know, good affordable bedroom communities who probably tend to lean a little bit more liberal. And, you know, that's, you know, the really, I mean, the story of North Carolina in a nutshell. Okay. Anything else you think we need to know? No, let's hear it from them. Representative Batch, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me. You're a Democrat from Southern Wake County, an attorney, a mom of two school-aged boys, and a legislator. What issues are most important to you with all of those hats on and drive you in your work as a legislator? That's a great question. So I think that you know, I represent people at the worst time in their lives when they come into my office, and I do a lot of family law and child welfare work um, with regards to advocacy for children in our systems. And so they oftentimes are dealing with really difficult situations, be it custody or divorce or child protective services. And it's been um, really, it's been a great privilege and honor to be able to represent those families um, in the court system and to help them um, navigate through these difficult times and come out on the other side stronger. Uh, but what's really been great at the legislature is that you can take the policies and you can take some of the um, cases and the personal experiences that I've had with my clients and really um, be able to make larger scale changes, right? So you can help hundreds of thousands, if not millions of individuals, whereas I'm advocating in the courtroom um, one person at a time. I think it's a really great marriage of skills just because with social work and law, um, I have policy background and experience with my clients that I can then take to the legislature um, in applying for applying that to what is going to be most important for, for families. So a lot of my work in the legislature so far has been trying to help uh, families, in particular working families, um, so that they have the ability to take care of themselves um, and to be able to provide their kids with the best opportunities possible. And as a mom, I would just say that it's really helpful. We have a legislature that is only 25% women and only four women in the North Carolina House of 120 members. Um, now five um, actually have school-aged children. So when I was elected in 2018, only four of us had school-aged children. And we bring a different perspective to the table when we talk about the fact that we understand what our children are going through. They're in school at the time. Um, we have experiences to what we see you know, as they walk through life. And because our General Assembly is made up of... Um, people who are usually older and that's because it's a part-time legislature and most people can't survive off of $15,000. Um, you don't, you miss the perspective of people who have children um, and who are younger and in a different stage in their life. So I think that I bring a different perspective than what some of my colleagues have. I know how much childcare costs and I was paying $2,400 for a really good, you know, really good childcare facility for my kids to go to. Um, so I bring those perspectives that I think are different than some of my colleagues. I'm really interested in your journey to becoming a lawyer and opening your own private practice. Can you tell me about that journey? Yeah. So I always thought that I wanted to be a social worker and I started talking to social workers when I was an undergrad and said, I really, I think I want my master's degree and multiple uh, social workers said, Sydney, you can't change the system within the system. If you really want to make effective changes, you need to actually be a lawyer. 
And so I took their advice, but didn't give up my dream of being a social worker. And so I attended UNC Chapel Hill and I got my law degree and my social work, my master's in social work as well. Um, and it's a really great marriage of two um, skill sets. And so I use that in the advocacy work that I do within my law firm. And when I graduated, my husband, who's one of my law partners, um, we own a small business here in um, Wake County, our law firm. He wanted to just strike out on his own, and I was absolutely terrified. So we decided to open up our own law firm, which was the best decision um, that I've ever made. We're able to have grown this practice and have um, multiple employees and have been able to have a, a very family-centered approach. Um, and so I've had a lot of advantages that other people and other families don't have um, by having the flexibility of being around you know, my children and being able to be available. And so we provide that for our own employees with their families. Um, but I also think that that's what we should move to in a society so that people don't have to make the choice between their employment and their career choices and wanting to be an active and involved parent. Is there a particular moment in your time as an attorney that you're most proud of? Yeah, so um, I've, I've been really fortunate to have a lot of amazing um, and resilient clients that I've worked through um, a lot with and, and have seen them come out of the other side in a much better position. There's one particular um, mom that I represented who had um, three kids and she went through a pretty ugly divorce. And um, at the time, she did not understand and realize that she actually was suffering from postpartum depression. So when I started representing her, she had only had supervised visits with her children. She was not able to see them. Um, she was not getting mental health treatment and she was in a really um, bad place. So I quickly was able to ascertain that based on some of the symptoms that she was expressing uh, to me and what I saw within the decisions she was making in her life that I, I didn't think that it was bipolar disorder, which she had been diagnosed with. And so because of my education and background in social work, I knew very quickly that I needed to get her assessed. So I found the resources. She, she was um, indigent, so she didn't have a lot of money. So I found um, a therapist for her to get engaged in therapy. And I um, was able to contract with a, psych a psychiatrist to do an evaluation. And that's when we found out that she was misdiagnosed. So she was being treated for bipolar disorder when really it was postpartum depression. And so once she started engaging in therapy, once she got on the right meds, her entire life changed because she was finally able to actually parent the way that she could because she was properly diagnosed. Um, so, you know, over the course of representing her, I think for about a year or so, she went from having supervised visits to her kid, with her kids to being able to have joint custody um, and is an absolutely amazing mom. She's gone on to have another child. And because she knew that she had postpartum depression and that she was predisposed to that, she was able to take the necessary steps during her pregnancy and after so that there were no issues and that she wasn't going to be in a tough spot again with her mental health. And so, you know, mom was able to change the trajectory of her life and her children's life. Um, and they are an absolutely happy and wonderful family now because she was able to get the service that she needed. You've said mental health and healthcare are one of your top priorities. What, if anything, you want to change in North Carolina when it comes to healthcare? You know, I, I truly believe, and I think most people believe that when people are sick, they should be able to go to the doctor, right? And not have to make decisions about whether or not they delay treatment or whether they not go because they don't have access or because they're afraid that they're going to have a bill that they're not going to be able to afford and be medically bankrupt. Many people are living paycheck to paycheck. So they have to make the decision about whether or not they're going to put food on their tables or whether or not they're going to get treatment. And so there are steps that North Carolina can take and many times in which we have tried to promote legislation that would actually help a lot of people, in particular working families, to get access to health care. One of the major ways in which we can increase the amount of individuals that have access is Medicaid 
expansion here in North Carolina. As a proud sponsor, as a primary sponsor of Medicaid expansion, um, it would allow for pre-COVID 500,000 North Carolinians to have access to healthcare. Um, and it would, and since post-COVID, there's an estimated 200,000 individuals that lost their employer-sponsored healthcare. So, you know, we could have over 700,000 individuals who could have access. Um, and it would help save, of course, rural hospitals who are really um, having uh, issues with regards to staying open. And it would give rural North Carolinians the opportunity to be able to get treatment um, and to be able to get treatment within their own um, within their, their own area instead of having to travel so far. But Medicaid expansion is only one leg of like a healthcare stool, if you think about it. I think there are other steps. I was happy to sponsor, I mean, to uh, vote for a, an association healthcare bill. So for instance, realtors who are independent contractors can all come together in a group and they can negotiate with a Blue Cross and Aetna, a, a, a United Healthcare, just like a large company can to try and drive down the costs. And we know that when more people are, have health insurance, it drives down the cost for everyone's premiums. And that's what we've seen. Um, and so I think that's another aspect of what we can do with regards to try to lower the costs. So the more people we have on health insurance, the better off we all are. Um, people should be able to, of course, make sure that they're in a position where they can take care of themselves. And Medicaid expansion is just the easiest because with a revenue deficits that we're talking about coming in next, you know, estimated between four and $5 billion, it actually will put money into our economy, give in, you know, an estimated 45,000 jobs, which we desperately need in North Carolina. Um, but it also will provide health insurance for um, hundreds of thousands of North Carolinians and never raise taxes, right? It's, ta it's, a, it's a tax neutral bill. So I think those are the aspects of which we can start focusing on uh, making sure people have access to healthcare and making sure that mental health within that, of course, they have, they have access to mental health services because many people would do much better if we looked at the social determinants of health and make sure that people have access to both mental health care and medical care. You were diagnosed with breast cancer while you were on the campaign trail in 2018. How has that informed how you approach health-related policy issues, if, if at all? Yeah. Yeah, that was, um, it's never, there's never a good time that you want to hear that you're diagnosed with uh, any type of cancer or major debilitating um, disease. So that was hard. My kids were five and seven at the time. And I was, you know, the first thoughts that came into my head before I knew about what my diagnosis and stage would be was whether or not they'd have memories of me. Um, whether or not I'd be able to dance at their weddings. And so it um, it definitely threw me uh, for a loop. But fortunately, because I have a fantastic support network at the time, of course, my um, I'm a small business owner. And we pay 100% of the health insurance premiums for our employees. So I had really good health insurance. Uh, and I had access to, because I was, of course, employed, I could take the time off that I need and not worried about getting fired. And we have amazing doctors in the triangle where I, you know, could, get, could go to world-renowned doctors in this area. So I considered myself extremely fortunate. Um, and early intervention actually has saved my life because I got diagnosed. Um, you know, it was, it was a diagnostic exam. It was my first mammogram, right? So I got my first mammogram and you don't think you're going to get cancer, but you do. But because I was able to get early and preventative services, they were able to, of course, um, go through the process of me getting treatment um, very early on. And I didn't drop out of the race because I knew that there are so many other individuals who work hard every single day who do not have access to healthcare, um, who do not have the ability to have the um, the great fortune and privilege that I've had to be able to take the time off and to be able to get treatment. And we need to make sure that we are 
taking care of everyone and making sure no one dies simply because they don't have access to healthcare. And so I've used that as a platform that I'm fine. I'm very fortunate. But there are a lot of individuals that through no fault of their own and through hard work still just can't afford to be able to pay some of the premiums with parts to healthcare. So in that way, I, I, I speak about it openly um, because I think that it's really important for everyone to understand that no one should die or no one should go without care or be sick simply because they don't have access to healthcare. You've also been vocal about the changes you want to see in education. Can you tell me more about those? Sure. So with regards to our education space, you know, it's it's interesting. A lot of people probably don't know that we are still below our pre you know, the pre-recession spending, we, we have not returned to that. So our per pupil spending um, is still um, low. And while we have made progress with regards to teacher pay, um, the step increases have not been a focus of the General Assembly. So teachers who are in have been um, working from 15 to 24 years have not gotten um, the same step increases and an increase in, in salaries like we have trying to catch up with some of our newer teachers. And so I think there's been a um, lack of focus on that. So one of the many budgets that was passed um, and proposed through the General Assembly this year um, did not give actually an increase in pay for that step increase between 15 and 24. And we just need to make sure that we have proportional raises throughout um, our educators' lives. Um, We are still... $10,000 less on teacher pay than the national average. So we have to do that. There's been work that's been done in that area, but we definitely have some, but we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, And then this year um, we have actually, the um, Democrats had filed uh, legislation and I was a co-sponsor on the Leandro action plan Um, in North Carolina. We have an amazing constitutional right to a sound basic education for every child. We have uh, the general assembly and the state has failed children based on a lawsuit of doing that. And we are in a position in which we provided legislation to go ahead and actually fix some of those wrongs. Um, You should not be in an antiquated funding system that we currently have in our state where certain counties that are wealthier, like Wake, can go ahead and have teacher supplements and attract more teachers or can provide a higher amount of supplement on the per people spending. But other places uh, and other places in North Carolina, especially in rural North Carolina, they don't have the tax base through their towns to be able to do that. So we really need to look at how we actually change the way we do per people spending. And then, um, so I would, of course, make sure that we implement the lean action plan and legislation to fix some of the inequities in education. And then last, we have um, a lot of capital projects and investments that we have to make in our in our school. The North Carolina House proposed a bond. The Senate had a different plan. Uh, and we really think, um, and I support the governor's position, which was making sure that we had a bond because we have schools that have asbestos. We have schools that are have been condemned, that have mold, that have no air conditioning. There's so many capital needs and improvements. We need to make sure our teachers, our staff, our, and our educators are in a, and our students are in safe buildings. And we don't have that. So I think we really need to be in a position in which when you look at the overall overarching issue with North Carolina, you will find that as proportional to our gross domestic product, we are 50th in this country for what we spend on education for our gross domestic product, right? So we need to increase the amount that we actually invest in our schools and we have the ability to do it, especially since we, of course, come in dead last. I want to rewind just a little bit. You mentioned the General Assembly passing a mini budget. What is a mini budget and how does that differ from the one big budget that in the previous years the General Assembly has passed? 
Right. That is an excellent question. So if anyone's been paying attention, I just want to say thank you for drawing attention to state politics, because I think a lot of the, you know, everyone looks at the shiny new toy, which is usually what's going on at the federal level, but they don't realize how much um, the state legislature affects their lives. I oftentimes say that the federal government's just a conduit to which we get money. And we at the state level decide how we're going to spend the money that, that, is, that comes from the federal, um, from the federal level. So people probably know that there is a huge battle with regards to the budget uh, and that we don't have a budget and we did not have one. So um, Republican leadership decided that they were going to go ahead and pull out parts that they thought that they could get through with regards to mini budgets. So we started seeing legislation where it was like, okay, let's talk about raising the state employees rates for teacher pay. I mean, for state employees here, but only certain state employees. Let's do a mini budget for education. Let's do a mini budget for, you know, capital improvements and DOT or, or whatever. And so instead of having a global budget where all of us, right, when we're sitting down at our kitchen table, we don't budget in mini budgets, right? We have to, we have a, a pie, you have a certain amount of money. And at the end of the month, you got to figure out how you're going to make that work. The problem with mini budgets is that it, there are loose numbers in that. Yes, we have this revenue, but how are we really going to figure out at the end how to reconcile it? So we passed mini budgets without knowing what we were actually going to spend in a whole for it. Um, and so we got some good things done, but at the same time, it's not a global way in which we should be assessing what we do for our state and how our spending should be. So there were multiple mini budgets that came out um, of, you know, whether it's teacher raises and whatnot. And so that's, that's what happened this year. And it's really unfortunate. Yeah, that's a great explainer. Thanks. Usually the General Assembly passes one big piece of legislation that's the whole budget for the state rather than piecemeal bills. Are there any final thoughts you have or anything you want voters to know? You know, I think that we have all um, seen that COVID and this pandemic has um, really shines a light on some of the issues that we've seen. And we've seen that inequity is, um, is, is significantly worse in some areas. Um, and health disparities. But we've also seen that the basic things that we take for granted, like internet, um, are some things that we have, like with the schools, there's some schools and some students who just don't even have access to internet. And so, you know, as we move through this pandemic and we get through post-COVID, I really hope that, you know, we can have a focus on bipartisanship and legislation in the General Assembly um, to really work on making sure that we're passing legislation that helps the vast majority of individuals. I've been very fortunate um, to work um, with Republicans and Democrats on getting legislation done. And when legislators don't worry about trying to take credit, right, and they just try and actually get good work done, then we will be able to improve the lives of millions of North Carolinians. So I ask everybody to vote regardless, right? We have a great democracy and um, you have clear choices in, in this race as to whether or not the policies that I promote or my opponent are. Um, and then I just ask people to, of course, um, with their civic duty, vote and be engaged in this process, especially in state legislative races, because there's so much um, at stake. Representative Batch, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you, again, drawing attention to state legislative races and engaging people in a different way than we've had the opportunity before. So thank you. Okay, today here with me, I have Erin Paré. She's a small business owner in Southern Wake County. She's a mom. She's a military spouse. Erin Paré, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. What issues are the most important to you and sort of what drives your goal to become a legislator? 
Well, thank you for the question. And I am a mom of two kids and my husband and I own a retail sporting goods store here in the district called Play It Again Sports. We opened it about three years ago and it's doing great. It's a lot of work, but it's it's a great store and we're very proud of it. Um, I'm the founder of a nonprofit, a local nonprofit serving community youth, which established a string orchestra, a youth orchestra here in Southern Wake County. Strings isn't available in the public school system. Um, and I'm a violinist, so I started teaching violin to kids and adults just locally here. And it grew so fast that it was pretty clear without it being available in school that it was a need in the community. So, you know, I just put together a nonprofit, have a great board, and we um, started with nine kids and grew to 30 within a year. And it's a, just a really great um, organization and opportunity for kids. But I, I'm sure you might ask me more about that later, but I could go on and on. It's, it's just a great um, program. But um, I am a military spouse of 12 of the 14 years that Wayne and I have been married. And um, I sit as vice chair of a town board called the Board of Adjustment here in the town of Holly Springs. And I was PTA president for two years at our elementary school where my kids attend. So all of that um, experience, I can tell you that there's a few issues that I feel very passionately about. And one is first education and um, meeting the needs of kids when it comes to opportunities in education and their growth and opportunity. Um, I'm also, as you know, a small business owner, so the economy is very important to me, a pro-growth job-creating economy, especially locally and statewide, is very important to me. And public safety is also very important to me. As a military spouse, um, you know, I've seen a lot of people really put their lives on the line uh, to protect the public, to protect our freedoms. And I think now with the environment that we're in, we really need to start thinking very carefully about public safety. So that's that's top of my list as well. So those are probably my top three, but healthcare, affordable healthcare is also one of them and making sure that we have the ability to have affordable health insurance and access to healthcare um, in a way that doesn't overburden financially um, state and uh, the people and restrict access to providers and, and so forth. So those are probably my four top issues. So you've talked a lot about being a military spouse and what that's been like in raising two kids through deployments. Can you tell me more about what impact that has had on your life or, or how you view that experience? Mm -hmm. So we were a military family um, for 12 years and we raised our kids in the military um, up until a couple of years ago. And so we moved, you know, by the time my daughter was seven, she had lived in five different houses. <laughs> so we've moved a lot and, but the kids are very resilient some of our best memories were from our days in the army, moving around and just being in the communities of people also serving like you are. Um, I was very active in family readiness groups. Um, my husband was an officer and a company commander. And so uh, you kind of get the job. Some, some spouses don't, don't participate, but I kind of got the job as being a family readiness group leader, but it was, it was a great opportunity to, to serve 
and help families. I mean, we were in the Ranger unit at 175 in Savannah, Georgia, 1st Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment. It's 175 in Savannah, Georgia for many years. And during the war, the guys would deploy pretty frequently. And I say the guys because at the time it was all guys in the Ranger unit. Um, but that was a very cohesive unit because we were all in it together. And it was, it was important to take care of our families back home because the issues don't stop. The problems don't end. There's always needs that need to be met back home when the guys are deployed and they do a better job when they know the families are taken care of back here. And so as a family readiness group leader, that was my job to make sure that especially new spouses, sometimes we had maybe someone who was about 19 years old, newly married, maybe expecting a, a baby who had never lived away from home before and you know, then she's in a place she doesn't know. And it was really up to us to pull them in and um, make sure that they had the resources that they need and the friendships that they want. So, um, so they could really be looked after and taken care of here when their spouse was deployed. Um, we had some injuries. We also had a canine unit where we lost some dogs and that was hard on some families who had gotten to know these dogs every time. Um, and we had some, some losses that were really hard for the families back home to, to deal with. So really being there for each other and making sure the resources that are available to the families, um, they're able to, to access them and really having that sense of community when we needed it most during wartime, when it was very intense, not only for the soldiers, but the families was very important. And I'm really, I'm proud of that time. That was maybe the hardest one of the hardest times in my life, but at the same time, it was the most profoundly important. It really has been a driver for me wanting to make sure that North Carolina is the number one military friendly state in the country and that veterans and their families and active duty members, especially military spouses, have the help that they, they need and that they've earned through service. With all the hats that you wear, could you tell me what one of your proudest accomplishments is? Well, I have to say my kids. <laughs> my kids are, I'm so proud of my kids. Um, you know, I'm really proud of our company. I'm proud of our, our store. I mean, we really have put everything that we have into that. But I'm also really proud of my nonprofit. It's, it's, it is really special to see the kids grow and become good at something and foster a love of music making. Um, the, our not, the nonprofit is, we partner with the town of Holly Springs, but the idea behind it is to make this opportunity to learn a string instrument like the violin, cello, viol, or bass, um, make it available for kids who don't have that opportunity either through school or don't have the means to hire a private teacher or to join a faraway orchestra. There's some that are available closer to Raleigh, but not in Southern Wake County. And so the, the whole pur purpose of it was to make it affordable and hopefully one day completely free. Since we partner with the Town of Holly Springs and the program is run through the town, there is an enrollment fee through them. And I run the whole, I run the program as a volunteer, but, um, and teach it teachers a volunteer, but someday I'd like it to be something that every child can participate in at no cost, because even the cost of an instrument is a barrier for some kids. I hope, I hope to see it grow really big and powerful and wonderful. And I think it's on, it's on its way there. 
So one of the most interesting things I've read about you is that you have a background in regulatory work. Could you tell me more about sort of your experience with working with regulatory policy and things related to that? Sure. So I do have um, about seven years, I would say, of experience in working in regulatory policy or reform. Um, I went to George Mason University, had a master's degree in international commerce and policy. And after I graduated, um, I started working in government affairs in, in, in DC. So George Mason is Northern Virginia area. That's where I went to school. And um, I was one of the, one of the uh, work I did was I was a director of a coalition called the Regulatory Improvement Council. And we worked with legislators on Capitol Hill and with administration officials, federal agency people. And it was a coalition of um, trade associations, some small businesses, some larger corporations who advocated for a balance in worker health and safety and environmental protection and economic growth and job creation. So, so it was it was a coalition that understood the need for practical regulations um, and environmental protection, health and safety, but wanted to have a way for common sense regulation to have um, a role in the balance of job creation, economic growth. So, um, so we had several members of our coalition and, and some we worked specifically with on um, some regulatory issues. And um, it was a, a great learning experience. And that learning experience for me as someone in my 20s, I could see how a regulation made at the federal level would impact a small business in Fuquay Arena. And as I became a small business owner, it became clear to me how important that experience actually was. Yeah. So tell me more about your thoughts on regulatory reform and what you want to change or improve in that area. So I think I think um, there's a few things that are important when we talk about regulatory reform. And I think, um, you know, transparency is important, sound science a cost-benefit analysis in regulatory decision-making is really important. But I think, I think the legislature has a unique role. I think there should be some legislative scrutiny, even at the state level, to agency rules, um, particularly rules that result in a significant cost to impacted parties, to businesses. Um, so, I think that, so I think that's important, and I think there should be sort of a check um, in place, maybe at the state level. Um, I also think that occupational licensing reform is important um, so we can lessen that regulatory burden on businesses. One thing that was interesting at the federal level, we have the De- Data Quality Act. And you know, we worked with some of our coalition members through the Data Quality Act to challenge some of the science that would be sort of served as a basis for decision-making from a federal agency. Um, and so through that experience, it was it was really interesting to see sort of scientific disagreements play out through the Data Quality Act. And I think that's a, a good necessary check on government. And I think that we can maybe do a little bit of a better job here at the state level. Um, maybe an ex- example of that would be sort of a periodic review of regulations. Sometimes a regulation is put in place and it just continues on forever. And um, 
maybe a sunset provision or sort of a review of do we still need this and what does the impact of this regulation have on businesses today? Do we still need it? And so when these come up under review periodically, then we, the legislature can take a different look at them and see is that something we want to keep doing. So they're just not on the books all the time. I think that's a, probably a good maybe way to manage regulation a little bit better um, at the state level, but also at the federal level. Could you tell me more about how having a small business would inform your work as a lawmaker? Yeah, I think that the experience of investing your entire life savings into a dream is important experience to have as a legislature because you tend to value sacrifice and investment and savings in a way that maybe someone who doesn't hasn't done that you know would and i think that you know as a small business owner looking at every dollar that leaves the store and every dollar that comes in the store in our case is extraordinarily important i think it is for a lot of small businesses so you know i think when when you look at regulation taxes tax benefits and where tax policy cuts you a break and where it's a little burdensome, that all goes into this, wow, what is my year end going to look like? What, how much profit did I make this year? What can I reinvest into my business next year? How can I take care of my employees? Can I hire another employee so I can not have to work on the floor myself, but invest my time into growing the business so I can hire someone else to do the work that I can do but don't need to do and can hire someone else for? Do I have that money to do that so I can think beyond my business now and try to grow it, create more jobs, um, expand my business to consider another service? You know, those are the type of decisions and thought process that my husband and I, we look at almost every night at the dinner table. How do we do today? Did we sell a treadmill today? Because if that that's a good day when you sell a treadmill <laughs> or if it's going to rain tomorrow, if it's going to rain tomorrow, we probably won't have a good day. Um, with the coronavirus, you know, we were somehow one of the lucky people that were able to stay open. If we had to close and be deemed non-essential, like so many other businesses, we would be in big trouble. And I think, you know, there are so many businesses in District 37 who have been completely devastated by being deemed non-essential by the state and had to be forced to shut down. And even our neighbor in our shopping center, I mean, her dream has been crushed. She had to completely close. And we have an empty storefront next to us now. And it's just terribly sad about it. She's so sad about it, she can't talk about it. It's just awful what's happened. So, but it all, it all goes back to sometimes it really is just that narrow dollars and cents. How much are we bringing in? What's going out? And how much longer can we stay alive if, if we, if we are, you know, if there's too many, too many dollars going out and not enough coming in. And I think that that it's not just someone's money, it's family money. It's life savings that went into a lot of small businesses. And um, especially now with so many that are closing, um, I think it's pretty clear to everyone how important that is to really help small businesses and, and take that regulatory and tax burden down a little bit so they have a chance. Yeah. I want to make a small pivot to education. That's been one issue you've talked a lot about 
Can you tell me more about what you want to see in terms of changes, if anything, when it comes to education policy? Sure. I think um, education is really important to me. I think I mentioned that I served as the PTA president of our elementary school and and the treasurer of our school and three years on the board, um, with combined being the president for two years and one year in charge of the money. And there, I, I really feel strongly that we need to have strong schools and funding our schools is an important part of that. I also think that parents need to have the option to seek another alternative for their child if they need it. So I am a supporter of school choice and opportunity scholarships. I think that's an important part of a sound basic education for every child, which our state constitution recognizes. And I think we need to not, I think the conversation shouldn't be if you are a supporter of public schools, you're anti-school choice. If you are favor of school choice and your anti-public school, because I am I am an example of someone who does not think that those two are mutually exclusive. Um, my kids are in public school. I was raised in public school. Um, but I think I have a unique perspective on that because my sister, my older sister is a special needs adult. She was born with hydrocephalus. So she has had, she's a, she's been a special needs student since she was started kindergarten. And she had an IEP all throughout school the whole time. She got to, she went to public school and she got to high school and about halfway through high school, it became clear that we needed a different path. And at the time she moved to sort of a job training facility um, that was part of the special education um, system of the public school system where we grew up. And she learned to fold napkins for a restaurant, you know, in silverware or file papers or speak loudly when you're ordering food, you know, at a restaurant. Those type of life skills and job training skills is what she learned there. And it was right for her at the time. So it wasn't, it wasn't so much about, you know, in her situation. And I know a lot of parents have their own unique challenges with their children. Um, There are so many different examples of that, how it's, they just can't wait. They can't wait for the public school system to catch up in this way or that way. Um, They need a different option. So that child is on the best pathway that meets their needs and they can achieve their goals in education the best way that they can and as their parents see fit. And so I think it's in that experience and some other experiences just from moving around so much of the military family, living in different places with different types of public school districts and seeing the differences from place to place, that it really is important that we have those those options um, available. For example, you know, my my children went to some military schools on a military base, you know, Fort Bragg, they don't have a high school on post. So when my kids went to an elementary school um, at West Point, New York is where we came from. They received Spanish as part of their um, their studies. It was on a rotating schedule, but they, you know, my daughter had Spanish maybe two times a week. I'm sure that the kids who were there for many years got really great at speaking Spanish. And um, then, 
military kids, they move. You don't a lot of times get to choose where you end up, but sometimes there aren't schools on post. So the kids have to go to the public school system outside of post. And there's a difference in curriculum. So in our case, you know, we moved here to Wake County. We really loved Wake County public schools and we're happy with them. But if my child really globbed on having Spanish as part of the weekly curriculum and it wasn't available here, um, that skill maybe would have, she would have lost over time unless I have the money to have her get trained in that somewhere else. Um, so I think, I think all of those little um, examples of how, why we need some opportunities for kids based on their needs, um, their particular specific needs is um, important. And I think we need to expand school choice. I think we need to recognize the importance of opportunity scholarships. But at the same time, I think we also need to support our public schools, which is what I did as PTA president um, for those two years and three years on the board at my school. Erin Paré, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. In other election news, on Friday, September 4th, the North Carolina State Board of Elections began sending out absentee ballots. So if you've already requested a ballot absentee, you should be receiving it in around 7 to 10 days. If you haven't already requested an absentee ballot, also last week, the State Board of Elections launched an online portal where you can request and track your absentee ballot. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucille Sherman for the News and Observer. We'll see you next week.